one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There are two types of brothers in this text. There's the brother who wants to bear burdens. To bear means to take, to lift up, and to bring it to yourself as if to carry it on your own shoulders. This brother wants to bear the burdens of a wife, the burdens of children, the burdens of church members, and the burdens of one another. There's another brother in this text who creates burdens. He creates burdens for his wife. He creates burdens for his children. And he creates burdens for his brothers and sisters in Christ. So to benefit from this message, we all have to ask ourselves this evening, which brother are you? And which brother am I? So my outline is real simple. We'll use verse 2 as the centerpiece of this context. And we'll look at the work of burden bearing. What is it and what is necessary in order to do it? And then secondly, the warning concerning burden bearing. For he that thinketh himself to be something when he's nothing, deceiveth his own self. But let every man prove his own work, and then he shall have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. The warning is good for us. Because what God designs is, by looking at a warning, it helps us stay away from whatever the condition is that God is warning us against, and that is creating burdens for one another. So first, let's look at what it means to be a burden bearer. A burden is simply a weight, a heaviness. And again, to bear it means in some way we want to lift that burden and carry it or help carry it for one another. So the word bear is a present active participle in the imperative mood. That just means it's saying, be ye bearing one another's burdens. And as Brother Zach was pointing out about love, this is not a suggestion. Clearly, Paul says this is a command for us to be part of. If we look at verse 1, there's another present active participle in the imperative mood, which is restoration. Be ye restoring one another, and in doing that, you are bearing one another's burdens. The work of burden bearing is the work of restoration. So Paul says, brothers, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, be ye restoring, that's command of God, be ye restoring each other with the spirit of meekness, lest you also be tempted. Be ye bearing. So the participle clues us that the work of restoration is the work of carrying one another's burdens. Burden bearing. Now the word Paul uses restore means to put in order, to arrange, to adjust, to restore to a former condition. It's used in Matthew 4.21 of the sons of Zebedee after they'd been fishing all day before the Lord calls them. They were mending their nets. They were restoring their nets. Something a fisherman had to do in the Sea of Galilee daily or the debris that was caught would damage the net. So they had to wash the nets to get the debris out and they had to repair the nets daily. So what Paul is saying with this verb Continuous action is, as Brother Lewis asked us, what is normal in the church? And burden bearing and restoration is to be a normal, continuous, active act whereby we're seeking to obey God in bearing one another's burdens and seeking to restore brothers mutually as we're overtaken in faults. There are three directions we can go here in the extreme. One is 
which we often experience as we ignore the fault. Yes, you know the brother that has the fault. Clearly, you know about it. We ignore it. We tell ourselves it's none of my business anyway. And the word is an imperative mood, which God says it is in some way, in, in a biblical way, it is our business, not, not, in, not in the extreme way, but in love and concern about our brother. So we can't ignore it. We rationalize and say, well, what if the brother leaves the church? I think that's a pastor's first fear, isn't it? What if I say it the wrong way and the brother leaves? I can rationalize to the point where I I think I'm taking the high ground to ignore the imperative mood commands of the Bible because it just wouldn't be good for the church. It'll destroy the church. It'll tear it up. When God is saying, you be faithful to what I say and do it the way I say it and let me take care of the church. And so we can be gripped with fear. And to have fear is not totally a bad thing, but to be gripped with it to where paralyzed, we forsake the work of burden bearing is, is an extreme we should avoid. The second is the extreme of then being too harsh, too severe, too critical. What would you do if a brother had the fault you didn't know and he came and told you about it? He said, I am struggling with homosexual thoughts. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with transitioning to another gender. I, I know it's not right. I'm struggling. What if that person was your son? Would you create a burden or try to bear a burden? Would you say, I can't believe you're doing this. I would have never done that. You just created a massive burden because what you communicated is the gospel is not for you. And you acted as if the gospel is not for you either because somehow you would not do that. Not considering yourself. So we've got to figure out how it is in this text we can do this work because there is a fault and it's been confessed sometimes, but to be too harsh and to be too judgmental is to create a burden, a weight that suggests that really you're you're, you're too far gone for the gospel. And the third extreme, which we see in Christianity today, is to excuse the fault, to undiscerningly approve of the fault which is another extreme. So what Paul is trying to help us do in the church is to navigate the center of those three extreme directions with being spiritual or having the spirit of meekness. That's the only thing that can navigate those three extremes that each of us are trying to struggle against when we know of a fault, when we're overtaken in a fault. We are called to bear one another's burdens by doing the work of restoration. So what is this fault? Paul says that you're, to, you're overtaken in it. The word overtaken means to be surprised by it. This is not the brother who planned it. It's deliberate. It's a pathway he's determined to go on. He's willful in it. Now that brother needs to be restored, but as Brother Zach was alluding to, there may be a different method to deal with that brother. As Jude says, saving some with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Like you said, if you see a, a building on fire, you don't call them up and say, hey, brother, can we meet at Starbucks next week for a cup of coffee? I need to talk to you about something. No, get out of the house. It's burning. My son broke his leg a few years ago. He had to have a rod inserted from the knee almost to the top of the ankle. I asked the doctor for conversation. So how do you, how do you insert that rod in there? He said, a hammer. And he was not joking. I said, well, what if he wanted to take it out somebody? How do you, how do you get it out? A hammer. 
He told me about a time he had to get up on top of the patient, was hammering it, had a device hooked to the, to the rod, and was hammering up, and it shot and hit the ceiling, and blood went everywhere. <laughs> See, sometimes it requires hammer-type methods, but this is not the occasion. This brother was surprised. He was overtaken in a fall. The other nuance of the word overtake means to take by forestall. To forestall means something has happened ahead of time to prevent or hinder an action from taking place. Like the hurricane forestalled the vacation or a sickness forestalled your week. What is being forestalled by the fault? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith or faithfulness, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the lust with the affections, or the flesh with the affections and the lust. What's being forestalled is the brother's relationship with Christ. Love, joy, peace, and relational to Christ. And what follows out of that relationship is the relational fruits that come by the Spirit. He's been forestalled. It's taken him by surprise. And you are the brother, one to another, that's called to continually, as a normal part of church, to be restoring one another. To belong to Christ means we have and are crucifying the flesh. But this brother has been overtaken and the flesh now, as it often does with us, has overtaken him by surprise. Doesn't want to be there. Didn't deliberately chart this course. But he's there. And we're called on to bear one of those burdens, which is to bear the fault. Now, how do we do that? A fault literally means to fall beside or near something, and then it means a sin, a misdeed, a trespass, or a misstep. How do you actually bear the fault? As if to take it up and carry it on your own shoulders. No, you're not called on to carry the fault. You're called to take up and bear the responsibility of restoration with your brother. That is what you're bearing. And that is what so often we ignore. Say, well, that's the pastor's job or it's the deacon's job or that brother knows him or many other reasons we forsake the responsibility to bear it by seeking to restore. You can't bear the fault. It's his fault. It is something he is involved in that has caught him by surprise. We bear the burden and bear the fault by taking the responsibility to restore and seek to restore the brother. Now this is even more clear when you look at the last few verses of chapter 5 where Paul says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, restore and bear one another's burdens. What does it mean to live in the Spirit? To live in the Spirit means we want to speak and act in a way that's consistent with the Spirit's work in our lives, which is clearly in verse 23, the fruit of the Spirit. We want to bear fruit to the glory of God. John 15, 9. Here are you, my disciples, that you bear fruit, and thereby you glorify God. In other words, fruit-bearing, Jesus says, is the way God gets glory. We want that. We want God to be glorified, so we want to live in a way that's consistent with the Spirit's work. We want to, to ask Christ and ask the Spirit to do that work, and then we want to cultivate that. What does it mean to walk? You know the word there is a military word. It means to keep in step. Like in a platoon called the church, because there's a brother 
marching beside you. So the word fault, that we, which means what? To fall near beside something? He fell near you because He was marching in step, keeping time with you. So to live by the Spirit is to walk by the Spirit means you want to see, you want to speak and act in a way that's consistent with the Spirit's work in your brother's life. It's marching in step with you. Since the Revolutionary War, there have been cadence callers in the military. You know that? That man that has some kind of rhythm? You know, today it's very sophisticated. Left, 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 right, left. That's specifically to help each person in the platoon keep their steps together. Well, now this brother beside you has a fault. And he's out of step. He's not stepping in time. You know that brother that sits behind you that never seems to be on the right line in the song? He's always off key. How does that make you feel? Well, if you are desirous of vain glory, you're irritated. You're provoked. You don't like it at all. You want to turn around and say, can't you see what line we're singing on? Now, just so you know, I, I'm the man. I'm the, just ask my wife. Almost every Sunday, she takes the book and says, here's the verse we're on. I'm always off that verse, so I can talk about that. I'm the man. She's very gentle about it, and she needs to cry. I have a fault, and she tries to help me. But if we're seeking empty glory, the glory of self, we're irritated with that brother. Or we're envious of the brother. We don't like it when he is stepping good because it's making us look bad because we want the glory. Or we're irritated because he's making us look so bad. Are you irritated in your relationships because your children make you look bad as, as the dad that trained them so well? And do you respond to that fault with creating burdens and weighing them down with a strict, harsh, unbiblical response? It could be. You're eager for empty glory. You know, the kind of glory that just fills the empty space and does not fulfill you at all. Are you the kind of person that does that to a wife? A wife burdened with the load of caring for the children and all that she has to do with. And you come home and you're grumpy and you're moody. Again, I wish I could say it wasn't me, but Brother Zach was talking about a frown on your face. I think my wife just told me recently, why do you, why do you have a frown on your face so much? I'm like, okay. I can get rather moody. I wish I could say to all of you in this room, I, that, that's not me, but it is. It is. And I can be a burden creator. You know, I've discovered how Brother Lewis decides who speaks on what subject. He sits around and he says, I wonder who has the biggest struggle with pride. <laughs> well, that's Brother Mike. I'll give him this text. Because brothers, God has exposed my heart. And that's what we need to remember. The brother that has the fault, first he's going to expose your heart. Because you can't do the work of burden bearing. You can't bear the burden and you can't restore the brother who has a fault if you're irritated with the brother and you're angry and you're upset and you're envious of the brother. Suppose he's doing well and not having a fault. So we need to understand you don't own your relationship. Every person in the platoon marching all around you out of step is there by sovereign design. And he's there or she's there to expose your heart so that you'll be ready for the work of restoration. Because what you'll find marching in the platoon is that you and I have some faults too, don't we? And so that brother is there to help expose your heart. And then 
when we are walking in step with the Spirit, we want to see the Spirit's work not in our own life only, but also to speak and act in a manner that's consistent with the brother marching on either side of us because God's aim is to get glory in the church, not just you and your family, but the church in Christ Jesus throughout all ages. So, there's a fault. The brother's been overtaken. He's been forestalled. And to walk in the Spirit means we want to seek to come alongside the brother who's fallen beside us and help restore, uh, restore the brother. But what, what is necessary? What spirit did Paul say is necessary? It's the spirit of meekness. Restore in the spirit of meekness considering thyself. It's interesting that Paul doesn't want to deal with the details of really specifically what these burdens are in a specific way because it's far more important to understand the spirit of it. You could probably recognize a burden. You could probably recognize a fault. But do we have the spirit that is essential to be able to do the work that the spirit is doing through you? God is the, is the restorer. But he has designed to use one another in the church to help restore and to bear Burdens of one another. So what is the spirit of meekness? Spirit just means a disposition, an inclination. We should be leaning in this direction. Meekness just means mildness or gentleness. Mildness as opposed to what? Severity, harshness, gentle, which means tender. It requires a tender heart. In fact, the word restore again was used in secular Greek. I have read as a medical term for setting a fractured bone or setting a dislocated bone. Now, what kind of doctor do you want to come in and set your bone? One that's harsh, critical, thinks he's something when he's nothing? Or, or a doctor that's meek and gentle? And for some reason, he knows how to handle the fractured bone. And the reason he does, there's two reasons here, I'll, I'll limit it to two about the spirit of meekness. His first spirit of meekness is considering itself. Of course, that, that's the point Paul most wants to make, isn't it? The participle. Spirit of meekness, considering, which means this is it, itself, lest you be tempted. Now, I don't think Paul is saying you're at the place where you won't be tempted if you have this spirit, but if you don't have this spirit, you're probably going to fall by the temptation. What is it you th should think about yourself? Well, you should think the very opposite of verse 3. He that thinketh himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceiveth himself, which means he's a mind misleader. But if you're not misleading mind, then you know you're nothing, which means you're something in Christ. You see, beloved, what we must consider, what meekness and gentleness always has before it, when the Spirit is cultivating that in you, is that you are nothing outside of Christ. When we forget the grace and mercy of God, it shapes the way we think about ourselves. Then it shapes the way we think about the brother that's fallen beside us. This is the problem with the churches of Galatia. Galatians 1.6 I am, I marvel, Paul says, that you are so soon removed from Him who called you into the grace of Christ and to another gospel. Now, why didn't Paul say another God? 
If you remove from God, that means you remove to another God. Because God is the gospel. He's the good news. When you remove yourself, not from a position, but from the person of the position called grace, your thoughts about yourself invert towards yourself and it changes the way you look at faults. That's why you're so critical. You've forgotten the mercy of God and that we're nothing without Christ. Do you wake up every morning blessing God that He's promised new morning mercies for you? Do you go to bed at night thanking God that He provided grace and mercy throughout the day? That's going to shape the way you see the brother beside you. When you forget mercy and you forget grace, as these churches did, they moved away from God to a position of self-justification by circumcision. Why? Because they moved away from Christ. When we begin to justify ourselves and think ourselves right, what about the brother? He's so wrong. I mean, he, he's got what's coming to him, right? You ever said that? You've forgotten mercy. I mean, I've worked hard. I, I kind of deserve where I am, right? <laughs> wrong. When you forget mercy, it's all too easy not to extend mercy, to ignore the brother, to get harsh with the brother, or to excuse the brother. Why? Because now we've moved away from him that called us into the grace of Christ. We've moved to another gospel, asking another gospel to do what God alone can do. And that's be to, to fulfill your soul. Meekness remembers mercy. Now, when you remember mercy and it shapes what you think about yourself, I don't deserve this. I'm nothing. Not that you have a low view of self, but with regard to who I am and the, the grace of God, uh, salvation is by grace. I'm nothing and I can do nothing, Jesus says. And I understand that God in an act of outrageous, amazing, shocking, crazy mercy. I mean, I am shocked that He would save people like you and me. Now you're ready to restore a brother because you're going to be gentle. You're not going to say, I can't believe you're doing this. You're going to think, it's only by the grace of God that I'm not doing that. Paul constantly remembered this. Titus chapter 3, he was talking to Titus on about the island of Crete where he left him there where a bunch of evil beasts and slow bellies, not a place really you want to be as far as uh, your, your own comfort. It's a place you want to be for, be for evangelism. He said, Paul, uh, uh, Titus, I want you to put the remembrance to uh, obey magistrates, principalities, uh, powers, the authorities, uh, to speak evil of no man uh, from the president down. Sorry, guys. To be no brawlers, strikers with your words or your fist. To be gentle, showing all meekness to all men. Show all meekness to all men. And Titus might go. If we role play a minute. Are you kidding me? You want me to show meekness to corrupt politicians like that? You want me to be meek to evil beasts and slow bellies? Titus, Titus. Here's how you do it. Because we ourselves were sometime foolish, disobedient, deceived. Do you remember that? Yep. I do. You remember when you were serving all kinds of lust and pleasures? Boy, did I remember that. Do you remember when you were living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another? 
I remember that. What happened, Titus? After the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared. Epiphany is where we get the English word. It showed up. It showed up in the gospel and in the cross. Why did it show up? Well, not because of your works of righteousness, not because of your circumcision, not because you deserve it, but because of His mercy. And the reason you believe the gospel is because of the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on you abundantly. Titus, the way the Spirit cultivates mercy is you remember, you remember the kindness and love of God our Savior. And that humbles you and melts your heart and then moves you out to be a burden bearer. And you take the responsibility out of love for the brother. See, we we consider that first. Secondly, meekness considers the law of Christ. Now, Paul said, bear ye one another's burdens and what you're doing is fulfilling the law of Christ. Now, he doesn't mean fulfilling it is how you justify yourself or you are saved. Christ fulfilled it on our behalf so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Romans 8, 4. What is the law of Christ? Galatians 5, 13. It's love, as Brother Zach told us. For brethren, you've been called unto liberty, only use not your liberty as an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Here's the law of Christ. He's fulfilled it, but it's going to be fulfilled in you in one word. Thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one another. This, this I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now why did Paul say there's only one word when there's actually two? You ever catch that? Did Paul get it wrong? We contradicted Jesus. There's two words of the law. Love God, love your neighbor. Paul says all the laws fulfilled in one word, second commandment. Why did he say that? Because you and I could sit around all day and say, brother, do you love God? Oh yeah, I love God. How do you know you love God? As Brother Zach said. When you love one another. That's the only way you know. right? So if we misuse our liberty, we give occasion to the flesh, we seek to gratify the flesh, which is the lust of the flesh, which means when we do that, we don't bear burdens, we bite and devour one another. Because we think ourselves to be something. When we expect the relationship, whether it's the brother beside you, your wife or your children, or any relationship you're in, that you own it as a means to serve your gratification, you will destroy people because they are not in line with your agenda. And so you're angry, you're irritated, you're mad, and you're critical. Why? Because you're using your freedom as an occasion to gratify the flesh. And Paul says that leads to biting and devouring. What's happening in the church of Galatia is when they take up a system of self-justification called circumcision, yes, they are biting and devouring one another because they think themselves to be something. How do we fulfill the law then? How is meekness, which is amazed at the mercy of God and then is bearing burdens to fulfill the law of Christ, which is love, how does that happen? Just the opposite of gratifying the lust of the flesh. When the love and mercy and kindness of God is gratifying your soul, then and only then can you love your neighbor. Do you mean like sometimes? No. Then and only then can you love your neighbor. 
or it'll all be external. You cannot obey commands and love your neighbor until the love of God is fulfilling the soul in such a way you are a river going out to other people. That's what Jesus said in John 7. That's what he means in Matthew 22 when he says the whole law and the prophets hang on this. The first one's love God. The second one is likened to it because it's dependent on the first one. And so what's happening in the church of Galatia? They're in love with themselves. They don't love anybody but themselves. And they think themselves to be something when they're nothing. So what's happening in the relationships? They are creating burdens with circumcision, works, and legalism, and they are destroying their families. So meekness not only is a spirit of gentleness because of the mercy of God, that same spirit is relying on the love of Christ. It is relationship with Christ in such a way that the Spirit has joined us to Christ by faith. And through that, what's faith doing? Faith worketh by love. The Spirit is producing love in your life by connected to Christ like a, like a funnel that's coming down from heaven to strengthen, fulfill, encourage, give you peace, give you joy in all the words of the Bible that we find. So meekness is looking to God as the source of strength and as the source to fulfill the law of love to neighbor because God is the source. So rather, removing ourselves from the one that called us to the grace of Christ to another gospel, we go back to God who is the gospel and from Him we find all that we need for life, for godliness, for burden bearing, for bearing one another's faults. May God give us this spirit of meekness We're relying upon Him and not ourselves in this work. And we're resting in His love and His mercy and we continue to be amazed with it so that we're not burdening our brothers in our relationships. We're going in with love, seeking by the Spirit to lift it and to bear. Now, lastly, a warning beginning in verse 3. The warnings of the Bible are for God's people to help us. They are to help us. Sometimes people say, well, the warnings of the Bible are not for the believer. Yes, they are. Paul gave them to churches over and over. So here's the warning. Why do you want to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ? Because if a man think himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove or test his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, because every man shall bear his own burden. Now, Paul is going to give us a test. He's going to assume we pass the test, but he gives us a test to see if we think we're something, we're nothing, and to see if we're deceiving ourselves. That's good, because if I am, I want to know it. Self-deception is the worst kind. When you deceive me, I may see it. When I deceive myself, I don't know it. So the test is to prove your own work. But in contrast to the man that thinks him something when he's nothing, but test your own work. Now the word test is a metallurgical word used for testing metals. It can mean one of two things. It can mean the test itself or the result of the test where you say, hey, that's genuine. You remember the old cowboy movies when they'd bite on a coin? I never knew this, but that was the test. The old gold coins of metal, if it was too mushy, that was not genuine. If it didn't have a little bit of malleable indent to it from your teeth, then it was not genuine. You saw the guy bottom pulls out his gun and starts gunning people down. It was not genuine. Now this word here, 
prove means the test itself. And then the result we're going to see will determine, yes, we struggle. <laughs> Who here doesn't struggle with thinking himself as something? Or nothing. Yes, we struggle. But the test keeps pointing us back to being the kind of person that bears burdens and creates them. So what are we testing? We're testing the work of burden bearing and restoration. What is the test of that work? It's in the word rejoicing, which means to glory or to boast. Now here's the question. If you create burdens and you think yourself to be something, what are you boasting in? Another man's, right? You're not boasting in yourself alone. Your, your boasting is in connection with another man's what? His faults. That's what gives you joy. Because the lower he goes, the better you look. Matthew 23. They bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born and they lay them on men's shoulders and they themselves will not lift them with a one finger. Now picture every man in this room weighed down with a terrible burden except for you. You're standing upright. Who's looking good in that equation? You are. Everybody's so weak and bent over. Now you won't move their burdens with a finger, but boy, you look good. And when all eyes are going across the room, they see one guy standing. Why did the Pharisees do that? Why were they such burden creators? Jesus says, for all the works they do are to be seen of men. They love the uppermost seats in the synagogues to be called rabbi. They make broad their phylacteries. Matthew 6, they love to give alms and pray and to fast so that everybody can see them because they're glory seekers of the wrong kind. The empty vain glory, they burden people to be seen of people. So if my rejoicing is connected with another brother's fault, that means what I'm after is to be seen a certain way that through the reference of him being seen in a bad way. I'm not going to lift that burden. That's what makes me look good. I'm not going to move it one finger. Now, if that's the kind of man I am, I'm really rejoicing in another man's fault, then one day I'm going to bear my own burden, and that'll be before the judgment seat of God. The Pharisees will bear their own burden because their only joy was in reference to the other man's weight. And they weighed them down with rules and regulations and standards that nobody could carry. All right, Paul, how do we pass the test? Well, he says when your rejoicing is in yourself alone. That doesn't sound right. But it means with regard to yourself, which means what? Not in connection with his faults. Your rejoicing is independent from him being burdened. And you're rejoicing because... You're not going to bear that burden at the judgment seat. Why? Because you have a burden bearer. Jesus Christ. You know that He's bore your burdens. All of them. So you pass the test. We say, my joy is going to the brother and bringing to him what I desperately need. He doesn't need me. He needs the Savior. And I know the Savior to be the burden-bearing Redeemer. And so I'm rejoicing, not in His fault, but in the fact that there's a fault 
deliverer. There's a burden bearer that takes away all of our faults and he's lost sight of the Redeemer. And what does Jesus say? He uses the same word, baras. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you burdened? See, if we're trying to restore people to ourselves, if we're trying to restore our marriage to ourselves, it's not going to work. We're trying to restore our children to ourselves. We're just creating massive burdens. When we're bringing the joy and the boasting of a crucified Savior, Galatians 6.14, Paul tells us, God forbid that I should glory, saving the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. So our boasting is in Christ alone, independent from brothers with a fault, because we know the solution to our faults is the Redeemer. So Jesus says, come. Bring what gives you pain. Bring what hurts. Bring your scars. Bring your sin. Bring the worst sin. Bring everything that burdens you and the loads that you carry. And He promises you, you'll find rest in Him. And and what is He like? He's meek. The spirit of meekness, He's meek and lowly in heart. And you will find the rest you need for your soul and the rest you need in order to be bearing one another's burdens. God bless you. Thank you, Scott.